Hello and welcome to another episode of Unpacking the Case, the podcast by David Jones-Bold, the real estate law specialists. I'm joined today by our head of legal training, Richard Snape. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lizzie. Thank you very much for joining me again. Um, today we're recording after your uh, webinar on Monday the 12th of July, which was entitled Enforceability of Restrictive Covenants, the Opportunities and Risks. So we're going to be looking at a few cases that you touched on in that hour. Um, I think the first of which is going to be the Alexander Devine and Housing Solutions case. Do you want to just start by giving us the background on that one? Well, yeah, it's uh, highly significant because it's the first time, it's a case from last uh, November Supreme Court case, November 2020. And it's the first time that uh, the Supreme Court or the predecessor House of Lords have uh, made judgment on Section 84 of the 1925 Law of Property Act. And specifically, um, the uh, Section 84, subsection 1, uh, paragraph AA, which was actually added in 1969, which tends to be by far the most commonly uh, used uh, way of trying to discharge covenants. And it uh, basically says that the, uh, well, the tribunal initially has got an ability to discharge covenants if they um, impede reasonable use of the land and don't secure to the person entitled any practical benefits of substantial value or the restrictions are contrary to public interest and also recognizes the fact that you might be able to be compensated uh, for loss of the benefit of the restrictive covenants and that's the background to it. Okay thank you for that background can you give us some more detailed history about the land? Yeah uh, the land involved was uh, originally part of a farm and back in 1972 as a farmer transferred this part of the land uh, to a predecessor of uh, housing solutions. Uh, and there were covenants on the land that it shouldn't be used other than as a car park uh, or uh, and no structures should be built. The land was uh, on the edge of Maidenhead in Berkshire. And uh, nothing seems to have happened for some years until uh, the farmer died and his son, uh, Bartholomew Smith, who was originally joined in the in the original cases uh, seems to be like to be known as Barty Smith throughout uh, inherited the land, uh, uh, neighboring land, and neighboring farmland. Uh, and uh, he gifted a part of the neighboring farmland that had been retained by the father to a, a child care, a cancer trust, a hospice. Uh, that's Alexander Devine, and they were intending to build a, a hospice on this particular neighboring piece of land and use the car parking area uh, to park cars you know, for visitors and the likes to be able to park nearby. Um, the, that was in 2012, uh, the gifting of the land to the hospice. Uh, in 2013, a developer known as Millgate uh, uh, purchased the lands subject to car parking uh, restrictive covenants and a neighboring piece of land. They got planning permission to build a housing development uh, on the land and neighbouring land that they owned. Uh, they decided, or they didn't have to, they had to build social housing as part of the Section 106 agreements, the planning obligations, they had to build 23 units of social housing. And they decided, in spite of the restrictive covenants against building, to build 13 of these units on the, the land that was being used for car parking. They actually got planning permission in March of 2014 and they started the building work regardless of the covenants in July of that year 
Uh, Barty Smith objected to this in the autumn uh, and made his intentions clear that they intended to bring action enforcing these covenants. But they were just ignored, all correspondence was ignored, and uh, the social housing units were completed. It was only in July of 2015 that they applied to the tribunal to have the covenants discharged, trying to present you basically a fait accompli, which is something that developers have been known to do. On the ground, it's uh, 84-1AA, they prevent reasonable use of the land. There's a need for social housing. I was surprised when the upper tribunal heard the case uh, in 2016 because they decided that the need for social housing would outweigh the needs of the hospice to have car parking nearby and some of the social housing units would overlook uh, when the hospice was finally completed it would overlook a, a garden of peace and a wheelchair uh, pathway that they were intended to have around the land. The tribunal originally uh, discharged the covenants, uh, but ordered £150,000 compensation to be paid. And so it's often what happens, you just work on the basis, you'll have to pay somebody compensation, but you've made money in the long term. It went to the Court of Appeal in 2018, and uh, I think unsurprisingly, the Court of Appeal said, because of your behaviour, cynical disregard of the covenants, and the covenants were quite obvious, um, you know, there was no ambiguity to them, you can't have anything other than the car park here. Uh, they found in favour of Alexander Devine, but then uh, well, Millgates, who uh, had transferred the land uh, with the social housing units to Housing Solutions, the Housing Association, and it was Housing Solutions who uh, appealed to the Supreme Court, and that was the decision we had in November 2020. Okay, thanks for that. Can you go into the detail of what that decision was? Yeah, the um, Supreme Court... Uh, decided in favour of Alexander Devine, but in different, on different grounds, the, uh, the Court of Appeal, and this is the important issue. Uh, they said that there are two stages to uh, Section 84.1aa. Firstly, is the use in this particular case of is the land of social housing units a reasonable use of the land? And they said, yes, it was a reasonable use of the land. But secondly, quite separate from that, uh, there's a discretionary stage uh, does the uh, the use of the land, is it reasonable to, to discharge the covenants? And they decided, in spite of the upper tribunal decision, that again, because of the cynical disregard to any objections and just going ahead regardless and the fact that they'd already built the housing when they applied to discharge the covenants. Uh, and also they could have actually built the social housing units elsewhere without breaching the covenants. Um, that was a distinct possibility. And so for those various reasons, uh, the covenants were not discharged. OK, so what is the importance of this decision? Well, it, as I mentioned at the beginning, it is the first time the Supreme Court or in the past House of Lords have, have uh, heard a case on this, which is surprising but, you know, after all these years, the original legislation goes back to 1926. Um, the, um, and also developers... Uh, well, A, can't cynically disregard people with the benefit of covenants who would be well advised to actually try and negotiate uh, the covenants away uh, amicably, because that's obviously going to be something that's going to be affecting them in the future. Um, but it does depend to some extent on its facts. 
but uh, it is a, a timely reminder that uh, you can't ride roughshod over covenants and expect to pay compensation. What they didn't do is they didn't say what was going to happen to these units of social housing. Uh, so are they going to stay? Are they going to be uh, knocked down? Have there been any subsequent cases like this? Yeah, there was another case I mentioned. Um, there have been several cases actually over the years. Um, where they have allowed properties to be uh, demolished, you know, where you've breached restrictive covenants. If you'd have asked me 15 years ago, and if you look at the textbooks from 20 years ago, certainly, they tell you that uh, you know, what you need if somebody breaches a restrictive covenant, so if you don't want damages, you need an injunction to stop the breach going on. And injunctions are not cheap to get for the average member of the public. And if you look at the older textbooks, they'll tell you that if you've allowed the building work to get underway, it's probably too late for an injunction, it's discretionary. I suppose the, um, the turn of the tide was in 2005 in a court of appeal case called Mortimer and Bailey, which wasn't in the uh, course on Monday, uh, where somebody had built an extension in breach of, of covenants, the back of their land on their garden. And they were almost completed the extension. Neighbours had given them warning that we would take action to stop this, but didn't try initially to do anything. They seem to have been afraid of the costs of injunctions if they get it wrong. And it was only about a week before this extension was uh, due to be completed um, that uh, they went to court for an injunction and the High Court, followed by the Court of Appeal, agreed and they got the injunction to basically pull down the building. Mm. So that was the start of it. The case I did mention was uh, George Wimpy, Gloucestershire Housing Association a case in 2011, which was actually in the national news at the time, I remember. It all took place in Presbury in Gloucestershire near Cheltenham, right on the edge of the Cotswold Escarpment, quite close to the, the race course, the second most haunted village in Britain. Uh, supposed to be, that's what they say. Good, good pub as well, actually. Um, but uh, there was a, some covenants not to build on a piece of land, or 1.8 acres of land that went back to the 1930s, um, so quite old covenants. Um, George Wimpy um, basically got planning permission to build an estate, a housing estate of 124 houses, and 17 of them were, would be on this uh, piece of land, um, which was subject to the covenants. And they completed, again, the neighbors objected and likes, this was blocking our view of the Cotswolds and the likes. But they just built anyway and again try to present you just ignore any correspondence and try to present you with a fait accompli and uh, go off to the the uh, tri uh the tribunal under section 84 of the law of property act again and uh the upper tribunal this time basically said because again of your attitude it wouldn't be reasonable different grounds again to you know, the Supreme Court's judgment, uh, but it wouldn't be reasonable to discharge the covenants, but uh, it would be reasonable to order them to be these properties that were already completed, practically finished off. They weren't sold yet, but it'd be right for them to be knocked down. I remember because it was when I used to live in the West Country uh, and watching the local news uh, one day. And uh, I remember it was snowing, so it must have been, I would imagine, the winter time. Uh, and uh, seeing the, the bulldozers going in and knocking down these already completed houses. So again, okay. and uh, I think I mentioned this, I 
I did talk to some insurance litigators about happened to be mentioning this case, and I was told, and I've got no grounds to believe otherwise, that uh, it was all paid for on their legal expenses insurance on their on their house insurance, which surprised me. Yeah. So there was another case mentioned in the notes that I don't think you got to cover in the webinar on Monday, and that was um, Lawn Town and Kamenzuli from 2007, a Court of Appeal case. Do you want to give us some of the background on that one? Yeah, it's, um, it's about a provision section 610 of the Housing Act of 1985, which is very little used and not always well known. It actually goes back, it's a bit of history for you, um, but uh, it goes back, the original legislation was um, something called the Housing and Town Planning Act of 1919, which was designed to free up houses, you know, this is sort of post-First World War when we have been told it was going to be a land fit for heroes. And there were various reincarnations of it over the years, um, uh, including the 1936 Housing Act, but I say very few cases um, but uh, Lawn Town and Kamenzuli, in its own little way, is a significant case, and it's uh, another way of potentially discharging covenants, not by going through the tribunal system, but uh, to the county court. And uh, what it basically says is, well, there's two stages to it. It says that the housing authority or a person interested in any premises can apply to the county court where owing to changes in the character of the neighbourhood in which the premises are situated, they can't be readily let a single dwelling house, but uh, readily be let for occupation of converted to two or more dwellings. Or secondly, planning permissions being granted for uses converted into two or more dwellings, but there's covenants, either leasehold covenants or restrictive covenants, preventing that use. So it's basically converting, it's limited, unlike Section 84, to converting houses, often old townhouses, but that wasn't the case uh, in this particular example, into flats. I think it would have been highly significant, but for the fact it was a late 2007 case, it was reported in 2008, uh, just as if you remember back to the credit crunch was hitting. Um, but I say in its own little way, and it's uh, highly significant. Uh, the background facts of the case itself is it took place in uh, Streatham uh, in London, the Streatham Lodge Estate, this large estate. There are actually a couple of semi-detached houses, large semi-detached houses by the sound of it, um, which had restrictive covenants against uh, you know, anything but a single dwelling, common enough covenant to have, and sort of mutually enforceable covenants. Lawn Town purchased one of these two properties and intended to convert it into basically flats. And the neighbours uh, frankly see why the Kamenzulus who live next door uh, objected to this. You can't do this as a restrictive covenant against it. Their cause, the Lawn Town's cause, was helped by the fact that they got planning permission from Lambeth London uh, Borough Council, Metropolitan Borough Council, to uh, convert into flats. Uh, um, and then they applied to the county court. And the county court decided that because, well, the county court followed eventually by the Court of Appeal, decided that because there'd been a change in the character of the neighbourhood since the covenants had been imposed, you know, there's lots of other you know, sort of houses converted to flats already. And although planning permission is far from conclusive, you know, the 
local authority thinks there's a need for additional housing and we're told there's a shortage of housing, especially in the London area, the covenants were discharged. Um, you can get compensation as with section 84, but they decided there was no loss, so no compensation. I've got some sympathy with them. Okay, have there been any other cases? Yeah, there have. I've not seen anything since Lawn Town itself, but uh, there was a case, a 1953 case called Serum Trust uh, and the Duke of Westminster, uh, where a similar kind of thing, they wanted to convert you know, the house into flats. Uh, and uh, the Duke objected, and they decided that uh, if they allowed the conversion, you know, somebody who's got a very big, very big you know, property portfolio, it might see it sort of be a thin end of the wedge and affect other properties, other people who want to convert. So for that reason, they didn't allow it. But I say it's very little litigated. That the 1953 case was under its predecessor, the 1936 Housing Act. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But all down to Lloyd George, apparently. Okay, another case that kind of came up in the notes, but I don't think we mentioned um, in the webinar was City Inn and 10 Trinity Square. Should we talk about that one for a bit? Yeah, it's, uh, I didn't mention it because uh, it's quite a complicated background set of facts. Um, but uh, suffice to say, it's about uh, the passing of the benefit of restrictive covenants uh, you know, to third parties and they purchase the benefited land. Um, and uh, as I did mention, Section 78 of the Law of Property Act 1925 says the gist of it is that the benefit of uh, covenants is deemed to be made with successes and title. And Court of Appeal case Federated Homes and Mill Lodge of 1979 sort of confirmed that uh, that basically means what it says the benefit passes. But you can always sort of state the country. Um, you might actually make clear that the benefit doesn't pass. But this is about, you know, there's more ways than one of making the, the um, benefit not pass with the land, whether by design or not. Shall I give you the detailed background to where it all was? Yeah, why not? Go for uh, it. Yeah, it was um, Tentrinity Square. Uh, is uh, in London, it's in Tower Hill, it's near the Tower of London. Uh, and it's now a fancy five-star hotel for outdoor courses, because that's nice. the place I hang out with. Uh, but uh, it's called the Four Seasons Hotel, but that wasn't the case at the, the time of the case, it was, which was in 2008. Um, but uh, amongst other things, it's a hotel, there's a few other things going on. Uh, 10 Trinity Square itself was, was uh, well, completed in 1922. It's sort of Art Deco, um, well, grade two listed building, quite an imposing structure. Uh, it was originally owned by the Port of London Authority and uh, the neighbouring land, which was called Mariner House, uh, used to also be owned by the Port of London Authority. 10 Trinity Square would, used to be the headquarters of the Port of London Authority until they moved to Gravesend, and it's right by the River Thames, which makes sense. Um, they um, sold the, the premises Mariner House, uh, transferred it back in 1962, and imposed covenants um, whereby the land, well, firstly, uh, the transferor, it's native, which is significant, had to consent to uh, plans and you'd have to give detailed plans before they consent to plans and alterations. 
And secondly, the transferor would have to consent to a change of use uh, if it was going to be anything other than offices and an underground basement car park, uh, not to refuse consent unreasonably. Um, subsequently, um, the land was sold. Uh, the Port of London Authority moved out of Marina House and uh, eventually the land came into the ownership of City Inn. The neighbouring land had also on numerous occasions been transferred uh, into 10 Trinity Square Limited as it was now eventually. Uh, and City Inn got planning permission to demolish Marina House but and build a, a hotel near the hotel and 10 Trinity Square. Uh, and uh, the 10 Trinity Square objected to this. They don't want another hotel nearby. And uh, they argue that these covenants must have passed with the land. They're post-1926 covenants and they automatically pass with the land under section 78. So what was the outcome of this one? Uh, the Court of Appeal uh, decided that uh, well, the reference was that the transfer all consents to plans and to the change of use. Apparently there were 28 references to the transfer all and only on one or two occasions did it mention that the transfer all includes successors. And for that reason, the Court of Appeals said that it must be the case that you didn't intend the covenants to, to pass with the land, as you'd have mentioned successors. What's unclear about it uh, is that is it a sort of across the board if you don't mention successes directly, which often people do, or is it because sometimes they refer to the transferors including successes but not in relation to these covenants? That isn't that clear. So what's the message on this one? Well for the conveyances and the property lawyers and the drafting just make it absolutely clear in the drafting. I say the original mm -hmm. covenants here were from 1962 when they transferred to London Freehold uh, and uh, leasehold properties. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the, the implication is that if you mention successes on occasion in relation to covenants, not on other occasions, uh, then um, the covenants won't pass with the land where you don't mention successes and you always make it clear. Are there any similar issues to that? There was another case uh, towards the end of the notes, which I, I didn't mention. Uh, it's not about section 78. What about section 79, which is about the passing of the burden of the covenants? as opposed to the benefit. And that does allow a contrary intention to be stated, but it basically says a similar thing. The burden passes to successors unless you say otherwise. In Morals, Morals of Oxford, uh, it involved a, a pub, Morals of Oxford, a brewery, um, and they sold uh, neighbouring land to the pub, but uh, with covenants, it became the Blackbird Lees Estate, whose pub was called the Blackbird on Oxford. Um, and they um, impose covenants uh, not to have any licensed premises selling alcohol within a half mile of radius. Um, years later, Oxford United uh, uh, got planning permission to build their new stadium, the Kassam Stadium, a place I've done courses as well. Uh, and uh, they were going to have sort of you know, the ability to sell alcohol in the club and this kind of stuff. And uh, Morals of Oxford objected. Again, whether by design, I suspect not, but some of the covenants referred to the transferors, including successes by implication. This one, which didn't, um, didn't pass with the land, Morals couldn't enforce. 
Okay, excellent. Well, I think we've covered a lot there. So I think, is that a good time to, to finish? That's a good time to finish, I think. There's lots for people to listen to. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to this episode of Unpacking the Case. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode. 